What follows now is the uh, denouement of the Epic of Gilgamesh, the adventure of the Bull of Heaven, which sets up the final climax to the Epic. Gilgamesh, to this point, was portrayed as a young man with ambition, but a young man who was arrogant and uncertain of what it is that he wanted. Now, in the stories that we know about him, um, he had built the glorious walls of the city. He had uh, championed more agricultural reform with wider canals, irrigation, successfully uh, feeding more and more people, making his people more and more wealthy, and so on. But at the very beginning of the epic, we found him to be a dissatisfied man, a man who was engaged in idle recreation and abusing the wives of his uh, young warriors, and um, whom the people wanted to correct, if not overthrow. And so Enkaidu was brought into the picture. Enkaidu, of course, becomes Gilgamesh's best friend, and uh, even as, as it were, a brother to him, seeming uh, similar to him in all ways, except that he would not be king. Now, this is an evolving picture of Gilgamesh. Originally, Enkaidu would have been portrayed more as a slave or a servant, a strong man, yes, uh, a man who had come from the wildness, yes, a beast man, um, all that would have been the same, but the sociological relationship was gradually changed, and so too the subtlety of the psychology of Gilgamesh gradually changed to reflect his growing sense of dissatisfaction and uncertainty of, about himself and his future. And so when we come to the tale of him and the conquest of Humbaba within Kaidu, he seems to be motivated by ambitions for fame, uh, for some lasting immortality beyond merely his being the king and a person of extraordinary prowess. There was an implication then that he saw his own life as being fragile and unimportant. And in a sense, his effort to conquest Humbaba was a negation of that, an effort to overcome that. So something like this now is haunting him, is hiding behind all of his actions, you almost feel. At any rate, our Akkadian compiler, putting together the myth, didn't give us the stories of his conquests of the city that had dogged his own father, or some of his other military victories, or of his development as a young man. Instead, we get this mature Gilgamesh, 
found in a moment of anxiety, and Kaido embracing him, then continuing to pursue some aspects of that anxiety, but within Kaido and now as his companion. And almost as an afterthought, we get the added story of Gilgamesh and the Halupu tree, and the sort of moral message or spiritual message of him wanting to understand what was going on in the underworld, what would happen after he would, a person dies. I mean, that seems to me to be the only reason why he sends in Kaidu down. Of course, ostensibly, he is sending him down to the underworld to get his peku and, and, and meku, but he could always make another one out of some other wood. So it's not just for that. He sends him down there to ask, answer some questions that he has about what it's like to be dead. All of this is in the manner of some personal speculation about what the meaning of this epic is and maybe some effort to empathize with the way the author, the original author, might have been trying to construct the story. So in that same sort of brave affront, uh, in an effort to make interpretation, we turn to the idea of gods and goddesses, because it will be a goddess who will motivate the conclusion of the whole story. The same goddess that's been already at the center of much of it, and that's the goddess Ishtar the so-called goddess of, uh, of love, but also associated with the goddess of death. Uh, the two being intertwined in, in the myth and um, in fact. For what are the forces of creation, but also the forces of destruction. So let's consider three concepts of God that you might apply to the interpretation. The first idea or notion of God is like that which is very commonplace in America, which you can hear every day on television among evangelical preachers. I heard one this morning. He talked about God divinely orchestrating his life. He said to people that they shouldn't complain if they don't get a job that they were looking for because God didn't want you to get that job. He's got a better job for you. Now, the idea then is of a God who is in charge, a God who is all-powerful, a God that is a ruler, a God that is like your permanent and continuous companion, the maker of your destiny, all of that, of course, but one that is also personal, one that is taking care of you, Interestingly, you can find comic versions of this same kind of God. I've seen cartoons uh, that show a God sitting at a computer console uh, playing the life of the person that they're watching as if that person's life were a video game, pressing buttons and moving devices to... Uh, be obstacles and uh, to, I guess, amuse this, this different kind of, but still supreme, 
being. So that is idea one, the God who is in charge. Then there is the model of the God, the notion of the God that is more like the Greeks, where gods are simply stronger beings, immortal beings, but beings nonetheless just like men. In fact, they look and act and just like men. They have feelings just like men. Men are, in that sense, sort of weaker versions of gods. They are mortal. The emphasis in all of this is that there is free will to both the actions of gods and the actions of men, and that the gods and men are often in, in kinds of contests or conflicts, and uh, men perhaps are seeking to get the favor of those that are more powerful, but they perfectly well understand that uh, the gods are going to do what the gods are going to do, and that the gods themselves have conflicts that have nothing to do with them that are going to cause them trouble nonetheless. So already we have a very different notion of God. In the first case, one that is completely supreme, completely in charge, and uh, we are either sort of their pets or their favorite children. On the other hand, we have a notion of gods where we are essentially sort of equals, uh, but certainly not as powerful as they are. So that's the second notion. The third notion of, of gods uh, emerges more with the rise of humanist philosophy in uh, in the 5th and 4th century BC, when gods began to be perceived as a realization of ideas, that gods are actually the things about which we are talking about. So, for example, if you say that Ishtar is the god of love, what we really are saying is we're talking about love being a kind of god. That is, love itself is a force. And so we are now preoccupied with explanations of nature. And the gods are representations of those explanations. In a little while, people will say, well, why bother then with the terminology of gods at all? And let's just deal with the matters of forces and look for explanations. This version of interpreting God is famously found by the, by the Greek philosopher Euhemerus. And so it is sometimes referred to as, as Euhemerism, or it is a humoristic view of God, or of events in history, or of legends, to say that they came from something factual or natural. Uh, rather than something supernatural. Anyway, as we now listen to the story of the, the adventure of uh, the Bull of Heaven, uh, we should be considering these three versions of what a god or a goddess might be. There are ways in which this story is a reflection of a contest within the city, between the forces of the imperial warrior and the institution of religion, the persons of the temple uh, versus the persons 
in the palace. On the other hand, we are also looking at this thing allegorically or psychologically, and we're seeing a struggle within Gilgamesh concerning the nature of life and his meaning in life. And Ishtar, in that sense, represents that paradoxical uh, conflict and union of life and death, of love and death, of the harmony of things and the disharmony of creation and destruction. And then again, maybe Ishtar is real, is a supernatural being with uh, human-like needs and emotions, more like the Greek god or even like the fickle god of, of the Hebrew. And Gilgamesh finds himself confronted by her and engaged in a drama which is real. The Adventure of the Bull of Heaven consists of three tablets, Tablet 6, Tablet 7, and Tablet 8, supplemented by some Hittite uh, insertions to fill in details. Some of the tablets are very badly damaged. Gilgamesh prepared for the temple. He bathed and discarded his clothes. He dressed in fresh clothing and put on a ceremonial robe, closing it with a brilliant sash tied about his waist. Within the temple, Ishtar raised her eyes as he approached and admired him and said, Come to me, Gilgamesh, and make love to me. Give me the fruit of your body. You will be my husband, I your wife. I shall have a chariot inlaid richly with gold and lapis lazuli, with gilded wheels, with crystalline harness and snowy reins, horses whose strength does not fail, like the ocean demons, will take you where you wish. Come to me, Gilgamesh. Come to my room, fragrant with cedar. The threshold shall kiss your feet. Kings and princes and warriors will bow to you. Mountain orchards shall bear fruit, watered land shall grow much barley. Goats shall bear triplets, ewes bear twins. Loaded donkeys shall outrun even horses. Horses shall be proud to race. 
your ox shall be unrivaled in his yoke. Gilgamesh made his voice heard and spoke, What can I give you that you do not already possess? I could give you oil to anoint your body, I could give you garments, I could give you food and drink, but could I give you bread fit for a goddess? Could I give you drink fit for the greatest one? Riches or robes? If I were to make love to you, what could I ever give you that is worthy? I am not like the others who loved you. I cannot compare to them. I am just a useless door that cannot keep out the cold. I'm a leaky water skin. I'm a bad shoe that hurts the foot. I know none of your lovers lasted long. I know none of them lived forever, but I remember them well. Dumuzi, your youthful lover, your first love, you make him weep year after year, even now taking him, rejecting him, taking him, rejecting him. You also made love to the colorful Alulu bird in the form of a lovely youth also, but his wing was broken when he flew away from you. He's in the tree crying, my wing, my wing. You loved the lion, whose strength is larger than all, but you dug seven times seven pits for him. You loved the horse, but you make us use whip and lash against him. You make us drive him at full gallop all day long until he is lathered and thirsty. You decreed the endless weeping of the mother of the horse. You loved the shepherd, herdsman, and watchman, who was always heaping fire for you and cooked lambs for you every day. But you struck him and changed him into a wolf. His own boys hunted him down, and his own dogs tore his haunches with their attack. You loved your father's gardener, Ilushulana, who brought you each day a new basket of fresh dates. You lifted your eyes to him, as you do to me now, and said to him, Let us enjoy ourselves. Put out your hand and touch me here. And you exposed your vulva to him, but Ilushulana said, why do you want me? It dishonors you. It dishonors the mother who fed me. I should be left by all society, cold, to live alone in the rushes of the swamp. He angered you, and you struck him, too, and changed him into a frog, where he lives now among the rushes of the swamp. No more does he draw the water for your garden. No more does he bring the dates to your table. So, now it is me that you want. How will you treat me? Will you treat me as you have treated them? When Ishtar heard Gilgamesh's reply, she was furious with anger.
When Ishtar heard Gilgamesh's reply, she was furious with anger and went up to heaven, to Anu at the sky's peak, and wept before her father and her mother, Antu. Father, Gilgamesh has shamed me again and again. He taunted me with memories of all those who dishonored me and hurt me. Anu heard his daughter and spoke. Why don't you punish this Gilgamesh yourself, if he has shamed you like you say? Ishtar said to her father, Anu, Give me the bull of heaven, father. Let me destroy Gilgamesh. Let me destroy him where he lives. If you do not let me take the bull of heaven, I will go down to the underworld. I will bring back the dead. I will bring them into the daylight, and they will eat all the living. The dead will outnumber the living. Anu made his voice heard and spoke to his daughter. On no account should you request the bull of heaven from me. There would be seven years of chafe without grain. There would be chalk instead of gems in the mines. There would be weeds instead of wheat. Ishtar made her voice heard and spoke to her father. I have heaped up storehouses with grain and uruk. Gems have been taken plentifully. Wheat is abundant there. Let me take the bull of heaven. Anu listened and relented. He put the reins of the bull of heaven into her hands, and Ishtar led him to the land of Uruk, and she released him. And he went down to the riverbed and wandered seven rivers of the land. At the snorting and stamping of the bull of heaven, a chasm appeared beside the river, and one hundred young men who were farming or fishing were sucked down into it. Then two hundred, then three hundred. A second snorting and stamping, and a second chasm swallowed another hundred men, young men, farming or hunting or fishing, and then two hundred more, and then three hundred more. A third snorting and stamping, and a third chasm opened and swallowed another hundred men, young men all, and then two hundred more, and then three hundred more. And in the third chasm, Inkaidu himself fell. chasm in Kaido himself fell. But he leapt up and seized the bull of heaven by the horns. The bull of heaven blew spittle into his face, and with its thick tail it whipped up its dung. And Kaido made his voice heard and spoke to Gilgamesh, My friend, we have offended someone. We have insulted them. How can we make amends? I will try to hold him, but you must plunge your sword into him. And Kaido was thrown, but he seized the tail of the bull of heaven, and he was tossed as the bull thrashed his tail. 
Enraged, but Gilgamesh acted skillfully like a butcher who knows how to slaughter. He plunged his sword in the right place at the base of the skull between the tendons of the neck, and the bull collapsed, and Gilgamesh and Enkaidu began to dress the animal, pulling out his innards. They put the innards on embers in honor of Shamash and bowed to him prostrate and prayerful. Then they fixed the bull to roast upon the fire. Then as two brothers they sat and rested. Ishtar was furious. She went to the top of the wall of Uruk and shouted curses at them. Her face was ugly with anger. That man Gilgamesh who reviled me has killed the bull of heaven. Ishtar was furious. That man Gilgamesh who reviled me has killed the bull of heaven. And Kaido listened to Ishtar and got up and yanked the shoulder of the cooked flesh of the bull out of its socket and raising it, flung it up at Ishtar and hit her smack in the face. He called to her. If I could get to you like that, I would do the same to you with my own hand. I would like to hang his guts on you. Ishtar gathered her servants from her temple, the harlots, the women who worshipped there, the king's own courtesans, and brought them to mourn and weep over the body of the bull of heaven. Meanwhile, Gilgamesh called for craftsmen, metal smiths to come, and they admired the breadth and size of the horns, Thirty minas of lapis lazuli, the sty-bloon stone it took to inlay and encrust the tips of the horns to make them decorous for our drinking horns. Two minas of gold were used to leaf their sheathings. One complete each could hold six core of beer. He dedicated them not to Ishtar, but to his father, Lugobanda, as a god to the statue of him that he cared for. He took the horns to his household. In honor of his father, he hung them over the bed where he slept and near his father's likeness. The men washed their hands in the river and went through the streets celebrating. The people came out and gazed at them. Gilgamesh addressed them, Who's the best among you? Who is the first and best men among you? Gilgamesh! Gilgamesh is the man! He is the only one who can please her, yet turns her away from his bed. Gilgamesh reveled and became drunk in his palace. The whole palace was filled with young men who drank with him and, like him, finally fell to sleep. And Enkaidu also was with him. But he fell asleep and had a dream. 
In his dream he saw the gods consulting. They had gathered and were talking seriously. When the daylight came and Kaidu spoke to Gilgamesh, My brother, I saw a dream last night. Anu, Elil, Ea, and Heavily Shamash were in the assembly. And Anu said to Elil, They have killed the bull of heaven. They have killed Humbaba, who guarded the mountain, and the forest of cedars. And Anu said, One of them must die. Elil replied, Let Enkaidu die, but let Gilgamesh not die. Then heavenly Shamash said to Elil, Was it not your intent that they kill the bull of heaven in Humbaba? For that you would kill Enkaidu? But Elil was angered and turned to Shamash and said, You were their accomplice, like a comrade to them. You helped them. And Kaidu wept, kneeling in front of Gilgamesh, and said, My brother, my brother is so dear to me, but they're taking my brother from me. And he said, I shall sit among the dead. I shall pass through the threshold, and never again shall I see my brother. And Kaidu stood and spoke to the house of Gilgamesh. He addressed the wood of the house, the rafters and the lentils and posts, which he with Gilgamesh had hewn with his own hands from the forest of cedars where Humbaba lived. I brought you a distance of more than twenty days. There's no other wood like yours. Your length is six poles. This doorpost is made of a single tree. I made you myself. I carried you myself. But tomorrow it will be another who passes under you, another who touch you as I touch you, and someone else will claim to own you and claim to have made you. He grasped the frame of the door and wrenched the doorpost from its jam. He hurled it into the spacious room. Gilgamesh had listened to his friend, and now his tears flowed too. And Kaidu, think carefully. Your heart always speaks so calmly. This dream was very precious, and the warning awful. I heard you. You murmured as you dreamt, like bees buzzing. The dream is legacy for grief, but is a legacy for next year or many years after. I shall go and offer prayers to the gods. I shall search out your goddess. I shall look for your god and the father of gods. To Elil, the counselor, father of gods, I shall make a statue. I shall gild it with gold of my own treasure. But the words he spoke did not alter the destiny of Enkaidu. The gaming dice cannot be played twice. The words of gods are not forgotten.